This morning I returned from Zurich where I have been meeting with decision makers aiming to convince them of what a brilliant World Cup England could host in 2018. On, on my return I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others. Uh, in addition to my duties in this House, I shall have further such meetings later today. Margaret Curran. Can I thank the Prime Minister for that answer and can I give him Glasgow space wishes in the bid for England? <laughs> And I mean that most sincerely. <laughs> Prime Minister, in a, recent, in a recent Lib Dem leaflet in Scotland, your business secretary compares tuition fees to the poll tax. Prime Minister, is it acceptable for the business secretary to say one thing in the House and when campaigning for votes in Scotland, condemn that policy? Well, first of all, can I thank the Honourable Lady for what she says about the England 2018 World Cup. I know she'd never mislead this House, so I know what she said was utterly sincere, and I'm sure is shared by members wherever they sit for in the United Kingdom. The point I would make about tuition fees is let's look at the system that we are introducing. And the new system, nobody pays anything up front. Every single student will pay less per month than they do currently. Half a million students will actually benefit from the increase in maintenance loans. I think it's time we started looking at the substance of this issue rather than just the process. Caroline Dynage. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Um, the Prime Minister has already explained how he's shuttling between London and Zurich in support of England's World Cup bid. Can he update the House as to how that bid is progressing, please? Well, I'm grateful for that question. I do think that England 2018 has got a very, very strong bid. If you look at the technical aspects, we have got the stadia, we've got the facilities, we have the transport networks, we have the enthusiasm in our country for football, and we can put on an absolutely first-class World Cup. I know that many people will ask, well, are you spending too much time on something that might not succeed? And I would say, if you don't get onto the pitch, you've got no chance of winning, and I think we should all get behind the bid. Ed Miliband. Yeah. Mr Speaker, can I start by wishing the Prime Minister well as he plays his part in efforts to secure England's bid for the 2018 World Cup? Yeah. Ours is, as he says, a fantastic bid and all of us will be hoping for a successful outcome tomorrow. We also note that the Deputy Prime Minister is away on official business and left the country before the tuition fees vote. But, but, but of course we understand that he had urgent business to attend to in Kazakhstan and we wish him well uh, in, in that. Uh, Mr. Speaker, Mr Speaker, the OBR forecast on Monday was hailed as a great sign of success by the Chancellor. But I want to test out what it will mean for families up and down this country. The Prime Minister has been telling us for months that under his plans unemployment will fall next year, but on Monday the OBR said that unemployment would rise next year. Can he explain why this is the case? Well, first of all, can I thank him for his kind remarks about the England 2018 bid. I know the former Prime Minister worked extremely hard on it, and I know there's cross-party uh, support for it, and I think uh, we need to maintain that as we go into these vital last 48 hours. He asked the questions about the, um, the, the OBR forecasts, which the Chancellor announced on Monday. Let me just stress again, these are independent forecasts, published for the first time independently, and not interfered with by a Chancellor of the Exchequer. In terms of unemployment, what the Office of Budget Responsibility found is that unemployment this year is going to be lower than previously forecast. They haven't altered their forecast for unemployment next year, where they're forecasting a rate of 8%, but they are forecasting increases in employment all the way through the forecast period, above all what they showed 
was that our policy of trying to cut the deficit and get growth at the same time is working. Ed Miliband. But, 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 Mr Speaker, what the OBR actually shows is that growth will slow next year compared to the forecasts, and that is what will mean that unemployment will rise. And what the Prime Minister and what the Prime Minister needs to explain is unemployment will fall next year in the USA, it will fall in Germany, it will fall in other major industrial countries, but it will rise in the United Kingdom. Why is that the case? I know he's determined to talk the economy down. Even, even, uh, even he is going to find difficulty in finding in the Office of Budget Responsibilities report depressing statistics because, generally speaking, what they reported was good news for the UK economy. They find, uh, and the last European Commission forecast report he announced, found that average UK growth for the next two years will be higher than Germany, higher than France, higher than the US, higher than the Japan, the Eurozone, or the EU average. Now, I think it would be more worthwhile for us to debate across these dispatch boxes, how do we get the growth rate of the country up? What reforms do we make to try and make our economy more efficient? Has he got something to say about that, or is it another blank page? Mr Speaker, he says, how do we get the growth of the economy up? Absolutely right. But what you don't do is put up VAT. What you don't do is put up VAT next year from the 4th of January and cut public spending by £20 billion. That's why, that's why the OBR says that we will have the weakest recovery from recession for 40 years. I, 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 come back, I come back to this point. I come back to this point about unemployment, Mr. Speaker. Can, can he tell us? Can he tell us? Over the five years, over the five years of the Parliament, when will unemployment return to pre-crisis levels? Because that tests the strength of the recovery. When will it return to the levels before the recession? We inherited an 8% rate of unemployment, and what the Office of Budget Responsibility says is it will be 6% by the end of the Parliament. He asked the question, he get the answer. But let me just remind him of something. At the last election, the party opposite, himself included, said that if we cut £6 billion out of uh, the budget, that it would end in catastrophe for the British economy. He was proved completely and utterly wrong. Mr Speaker, have you ever heard a more complacent answer to a question? You have families families up and down the country. You have families up and down the country worried about their jobs, unemployment rising next year, and all the Prime Minister can say is it's some kind of rosy scenario. Now, let's take the rise in VAT, because that's one of the reasons why unemployment will rise next year. Let's take the rise in VAT. Can the Prime Minister tell us what impact will the rise in VAT have on economic growth and jobs next year? Well, first of all, let me deal with VAT precisely, because this is what the former Chancellor, the member for Edinburgh South West, said. He said VAT would have allowed you to pay off a sizeable chunk of the deficit. That is the po- policy that the last Chancellor supported. But let me, just make this, let me just make this point. If we had followed the advice that he's been giving us over the last six months, we would be linked with Portugal, with Ireland. Yes. standing here today discussing how we're going to get growth to go faster, how we're going to get unemployment to be lower, we'd be sitting around discussing how we're going to rescue and bail out Britain.
Okay, Mr. Speaker, you can only you can only you can only rewrite history for just so long. Let's be out. Wasting the time of backbench members. Let's hear the leader of the opposition. The deficit, the deficit was two and a half percent of national income before the crisis, the recession hit all round the world. It went up all round the world. It was a global economic recession. The question is, the question is, do you cut too far and too fast, which is what he is doing, and mean you have four years of sluggish recovery, the most sluggish recovery out of recession in 40 years? Why doesn't the, why doesn't the Prime Minister just answer the question? Is this the most sluggish recovery out of recession in Britain for the last 40 years? Yes or no? This, this is one of the fastest recoveries in Europe. <laughs> And the point is, if we'd followed his advice, we wouldn't be discovering, we wouldn't be discussing recovery, we would be discussing meltdown. That's the point. Look, he can have a blank sheet of paper about the future. He can't have a blank sheet of paper about the past. And we know we were left a record budget deficit. We remember no more boom and bust. We remember all of the things that he was responsible for. And I have to say to him, I have to say to him, after all of this from him, he's been doing the job for the last three months, and people are beginning to ask, when's he going to start? Mr Speaker, with that answer, it's no wonder that today we learn the Foreign Secretary describes this gang as the children of Thatcher. It sounds just like the 1980s, out of touch with people up and down the country. Why doesn't the Prime Minister Minister admit admit that he is complacent about the recovery, he is complacent about the people who will lose their jobs, and it is they who will pay the price? Mr Speaker, not waving but drowning. Um, <laughs> um, my, mother, my mother is still with us, so she will be able to uh, testify that what he's just claimed is uh, not literally true. But let me say this. Uh, I'd rather be a child of Thatcher than a son of Brown. Tobias Elwood. Order! Tobias Elwood. Mr. Speaker, the Prime Minister will be aware that British citizens, the Prime Minister will be aware that British citizens affected by the 7/7 bombings were supported by the Criminal Injuries Compensation Scheme. However, when such attacks take place abroad, such as in Bali, Mumbai, or Sharm El Sheikh, no such compensation for things like prosthesis and long-term care exists. Would the Prime Minister agree? Any Britons caught up in terrorist attacks deserve our support no matter where in the world that attack takes place. Minister. My, my honourable friend is entirely right to raise this issue, and people who are victims of terror, whether at home or overseas, deserve our, report, our, our support, as he says. And, and people may not know this, but his own brother was tragically killed in the Bali bombing, that horrific attack. Uh, that took place some years ago. We are looking at this very difficult issue of trying to make sure that when we look at criminal injuries compensation and what has been proposed for injuries received uh, overseas, that we have a fair and reasonable system. The Justice Secretary is looking at that and we will be coming forward with proposals. Lindsay Roy. 
Thank you, Mr. Speaker. The Prime Minister's government is spending four billion pounds for councils to promote wellness, two billion pounds to reorganise the NHS, hundred million pounds to elect police commissioners, and two million pounds on a survey for happiness. Doesn't that demonstrate the Prime Minister has lost touch with reality? Um, no, I don't. Let me take. Um, <laughs> I think generally, generally speaking, he should cheer up a bit. Um, but, uh, um, let me take the issue. Let me let me take the issue of the NHS reform. If we, even with the even with the settlement that we have set out for the NHS, which is real terms increases each year, even with that, if we stand still with the NHS and keep the current system, we will find that running into very, very severe problems each and every year. So it is necessary to reform the NHS. It is necessary to cut out bureaucracy. It is necessary to reduce management costs and have a system where we actually try and create a healthier nation and so therefore reduce demands on our NHS. And that's what our reforms are all about. Mr. Philip Hollabone. Along with Jamaica, Nigeria and Vietnam, the Irish Republic has one of the largest groups of foreign national prisoners in the UK. Given that we're about to lend them more than £7 billion, could the Irish Republic be persuaded to pay for the incarceration of these people by taking them back to jails in their own country? Well, my honourable friend makes an extremely uh, good point. We are looking at how you can transfer Um, prisoners, foreign nationals from the UK to other countries. Obviously with Ireland the situation is is slightly different because of the long relationship between our countries. The previous government announced that it would not routinely support the deportation of Irish nationals from the UK. This was announced in February 2007 and since then there has been a European directive which is actually helpful because it makes more automatic the removal of prisoners to other countries. But there is still this specific issue with Ireland and I'm going to ask my honourable friend the Justice Secretary to look at it and see if we can do a little better. Louise Elman. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The government is cutting its teaching grant to Liverpool University by 30%, to John Moores University by 70%, and to Liverpool Hope University by 97%. Is this a policy for closing down opportunities? Disgusting. No, this is a policy to make sure that we have got a strong university sector in this country. Honourable members, honourable members opposite can object, but it was the Conservatives and the Labour government that set up the Brown Review, and I would recommend that honourable members read the Brown Review, because the alternative of staying where we are now, you would either have to cut student numbers or you'd find universities struggling. What Brown has come up with is a proper answer for a strong university sector for the future. Tom Brake. Does the Prime Minister agree that uh, when this government is devising policy, it should look at the evidence of what works in relation to tackling reoffending substance abuse and youth, just, or youth crime, uh, rather than relying on the tub-thumping, shroud-waving, ambulance-chasing antics that pass for a policy-making process in the party opposite? I think the Honourable General makes a very... The fact is, with the difficulties of the budget deficit and the spending problems that we have, we don't have any choice but to look at the evidence and make sure that what we do works and is cost-effective. And I think we should start with the issue of drug rehabilitation, because if we can reduce drug-related crime and cut those costs, we'd make very, very great progress. Steve Rotherham. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Would the Prime Minister carry out an urgent check 
into the satellite navigation system used in ministerial cars. My concern is that just a few short months ago, the Deputy Prime Minister couldn't be stopped from driving himself from university campus to university campus. But since he's got his cherished chauffeur-driven ministerial car, he hasn't been seen near a student union. Is the sat-nav broke, or has the deputy simply lost his political direction? That's a, uh, a wonderfully involved uh, metaphor. Um, the point I would make is that, well, at least he can make up his mind whether to join a demo or not, the leader of the opposition. Uh, he, he can't... He can't even decide whether to sit on the fence. <laughs> Stephen Mosley. Last week, the governors of Crystalton High School in my constituency of Chester made the decision to apply for academy status. However, before they made this decision, they faced a barrage of opposition from trade unions and the local Labour Party activists. What message would the Prime Minister send to those who seek to undermine uh, well-needed reforms of public services in order to fulfil old-fashioned, outdated, left-wing ideological. Yeah. Well, I think my honourable friend is entirely right. The academy movement, just as the city technology colleges before it, have actually brought greater independence and greater authority to head teachers and have led to an improvement in educational standards. And I think if the party opposite has got any sense, they won't back off it and they should tell their friends in the trade union movement to stop objecting to new academies. Lisa Nandy. I've recently come across workers in Wigan forced by gangmasters to work 12 hours a day, seven days a week, below minimum wage, who were threatened and bullied when they complained. Why has his government failed to take any action to tackle this issue? And will he join me in supporting the gangmasters' licensing bill and help bring an end to this appalling abuse? This is a problem, and it's not a problem that has arisen suddenly under this government. It's been a problem for many years. There are problems with gangmasters and not paying the minimum wage, and we need to make sure it's properly policed. David T.C. Davis. Uh, thank you, Mr Speaker. Would the Prime Minister agree that the Olympics offer a golden opportunity to encourage more disabled people to take part in sport? And would he like to pay tribute to the Welsh Paralympic team, who we hope will be visiting the Welsh Affairs Select Committee in February? And should he be available on that day, he'd be very welcome to uh, come in and give his best regards. Um, I'm happy to endorse what my honourable friend says uh, and uh, his, the invitation he gives as he's an amateur boxer. I think I should probably uh, say yes immediately. It is great that the Paralympics are returning to its birthplace, London 2012, and I think it'll be a great showcase for sporting talent and obviously I wish the Welsh team well. Ian Paisley. As the uh, happy son of Paisley, can I too uh, wish the Prime Minister well? in his bid to uh, bring the World Cup to the United Kingdom. However, can I ask him, would he support the campaign by the historic town of Ballymena in County Antrim to achieve city status during Her Majesty's Jubilee year? Um, he's not only uh, metaphorically but also biologically the son of Paisley. He's absolutely on safe grounds. Um, I'll certainly have a look at that. I know that these campaigns for city status can uh, gain great traction. And before I start endorsing every single one, I'll perhaps have a, have a look at what he says. And I'm sure a very, very strong case. Richard Fuller. Mr. Speaker, the Prime Minister may have noted that the Leader of the Opposition approaches economic questions with the acumen of a novice out of his depth. But by the next general election, people, families in my constituency will have paid back £21,000 in government debt. 
Will the Prime Minister resist opposition demands to scale back on the deficit reduction measures? I will certainly resist those demands because the fact is we inherited a situation which was completely unsustainable. And it wasn't just uh, the Conservative Party that was making this point. The Governor of the Bank of England, the CBI, the IOD, the OECD, the IMF, they were all saying the last government didn't have a proper plan. We needed a plan. We've got a plan. We should stick to that plan. Jerry Sutcliffe. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Could I wish yeah. the Prime Minister well in his efforts in Zurich and hopefully we get the right result tomorrow? There was a great debate in the House yesterday, Mr Speaker, on school sports partnerships, and there was a consensus around the House that something needed to be done. There was an offer from the shadow front bench about trying to come to an arrangement on this issue. Will the Prime Minister look at it very urgently with the Secretary for Education, because I'm sure we can resolve this matter, because it's important that sport is available to all. First of all, can I say, I know the Honourable Member was a very successful sports minister in the last government, and thank you for his endorsement of the 2018 bid and all we're trying to do to win that for England. And the point he makes about school sport is important. I'm looking carefully at the debate that was held yesterday. It does seem to me that we all have a shared interest here. We all want good sport in schools. We all want more competitive sport, and we've all got to make sure that money is spent well. I think everyone accepts that not every penny was spent well in the past, and there is quite a bureaucratic system. The Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sport and the Secretary of State for Education are working hard on this. We're talking with head teachers so we can make sure that what we come up with actually works on the ground and I hope that we'll be able to make an announcement soon. Graham Evans. Speaker, the plans to link London and Manchester by high-speed rail will bring huge economic benefits to my constituency and the Greater North West. Does the Prime Minister agree with me that anyone wanting to el- eliminate inequality between North and South should support high speed too. No, I, I think my honourable friend makes the, the right point in the right way because, and I know there are going to be real difficulties with high speed two in terms of the impact on some people's constituencies and on some neighbourhoods. I know that and I understand that, but I think it is true to say that for 50 years, part, governments of all parties have tried to deal better with the north-south divide and to bring our country closer together. And I profoundly believe that high-speed rail and good transport links are a really good way of making that happen. This could succeed where other measures, frankly, have failed. Tony Loy. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The, um, the community of Collyhurst in Manchester waited patiently and stoically for, for, with their uh, insecure doors, their drafty windows, whilst they saw huge regeneration going across large parts of Manchester. So the Prime Minister will understand that the sense of anger and despair in that community when the Housing Minister announced last week that the, the regeneration would not go ahead. Would the Prime Minister agree that either he or his Housing Minister will meet with my right honourable, my honourable friend for Blakely in Collyhurst with tenants' representatives so that we can see how we can take this forward? Yeah. Well, I will make sure my housing, uh, the Housing Minister in the, in the Government does uh, just as he says. What I would say is there is the Regional Growth Fund, which is going to be available Uh, for investment in those sorts of areas and also the replacements to the RDAs, the local enterprise partnerships, partly because they will be more locally based, I think will have a a finer tuned ear to local problems such as the one that he raises. Chris Heaton-Harris. With the renewed prospect of travel chaos for British Airways passengers, will the Prime Minister condemn... Will the Prime Minister condemn the leader of Unite's implied threat to families when he said to them, don't go on holiday? 
I think, I mean, honourable members opposite don't seem to think it's serious that actually we've got trade union leaders now who actually say there's no such thing as an irresponsible strike. There is uh, such a thing as an irresponsible strike. Yes, and those that are bankrolled by the unions ought to speak up about it. Thousand people every year die from thrombosis in hospitals, uh, two to three times greater than the number of people dying from hospital-acquired infection. Yet many of these deaths are avoidable if hospitals follow the NHS guidance on blood clot um, risk assessment. What is his government doing to make sure that the UK's number one hospital killer becomes the NHS's number one health priority? I think the Honourable Gentleman makes an extremely important point, and I know that uh, he is chair of the all-party parliamentary group on thrombosis. Uh, it actually, I think the answer to his question, what are we going to do about this, the first thing is to make available more information, because it was a freedom of information request to the all-party group that showed that only 14 acute trusts in England were even close to meeting the goals to risk assess patients admitted to hospital uh, and the dangers of thrombrosis and, and, and blood clots. So I think he's right. The best thing we can do is more information and that will actually help us to make sure hospitals are coming up to the mark. Stephen Williams. Uh, thank you, Mr Speaker. The Prime Minister is, I'm sure, aware that today is World AIDS Day. What is the coalition government doing to make sure that the stem of HIV is, is stemmed both at home and abroad? Uh-huh. The the Honourable Gentleman is absolutely right to to raise this issue, and I think right to say that we need to look at both what's happening at home and abroad. In terms of abroad, obviously the biggest decision was to maintain the commitment for 0.7% of gross national income to go on our uh, aid budget, and we do make a very big contribution out of our aid budget in terms of the battle against uh, AIDS globally and making sure that antiretroviral drugs are made available. But I do think we've got to look at home where there are worrying signs of infection rates that are still extremely high and we need to get the message out today and on other days about the importance of safe sex and the precautions that people should take. Graham M. Morris. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Uh, having just got back from a visit to uh, Israel in the West Bank, uh, I was shocked to uh, witness with my own eyes. Uh, 13-year-old Palestinian children in leg irons and manacles in in Israeli military prisons. It's one of numerous breaches of the UN Charter and of Article 49 of the Fourth Geneva Convention. Whether or not the Prime Minister is the legitimate son of Thatcher, but certainly as a father, I'm sure he would join with me in condemning this appalling practice. But what will the British government do to put pressure on the Israeli government to comply with its obligations under international law and to relieve the suffering of the Palestinian people in both the West Bank and Gaza? Well, the Honourable Gentleman raises an extremely important point. Every country should obey the Geneva Convention and the other conventions that it has signed, and Israel should be no exception to that. And uh, ministers in, in the government I lead raise these issues Uh, with Israeli ministers, as we should, and I think that is extremely important. The fact is what we really need is a long-term settlement of the Palestinian issue, and we want a two-state solution. And I think it's very important that we put pressure, frankly, on both sides at at, at all times to make sure we make progress on this. The lack of progress only plays into the hands of the extremists, and you can see it with all the moderates in the Middle East that are trying to make progress. They're being undermined by our failure to do better. 
Priti Patel. Thank you, Mr Speaker. If the Human Rights Act is a glaring example of what is going wrong in our country, when will the government put the human rights of the law-abiding majority above those of dangerous convicted criminals? Well, I do think it is right. What we should be doing is replacing the, the Human Rights Act with a British Bill of Rights. I, I've looked at this personally long and hard and think that there is no better solution than that. And that is, uh, we are committed to starting a process to look at that and see if we can remove some of the nonsenses that have grown up over recent years and show that you can have a commitment to proper rights, but they should be written down here in this country. Eric Joyce. So, Speaker, the government's announced an injection of £50 million of new money into the interim Cancer Drugs Fund. Can the Prime Minister say whether there will be Barnet consequentials for Scotland because it's new money? Well, we haven't made any changes to the Barnet formula, so if it is Barnetable, as it were, there will be consequences, and if it isn't, there won't be. Bob Russell. Does, does, the, Prime Minister, does the Prime Minister think it fair that a war widow has to pay income tax on her war widow's pension? Well, my honourable friend raises a very good point, and I think that we need to look at all of these sorts of issues under the work we're doing on the military covenant. They're very complicated issues about uh, pensions and interaction with taxes. I don't want to give a flip answer from the dispatch box, but we do have a proper process of looking at the military covenant, and that's the right way to do it. Caroline Lucas. Thank you. The issue of climate finance will be a critical one at the climate summit at Cancun, which is ongoing. And while I welcome the fact that the government has pledged £2.9 billion to the Global Climate Fund, can the Prime Minister confirm that any future money pledge will be additional to existing aid budgets? And can he say what further innovative funding mechanisms he plans to employ to deliver the UK's share of the $100 billion pledged annually at Copenhagen? Well, I think the Honourable Lady is absolutely right to, to raise this issue. While Cancun is not going to achieve uh, the binding global agreement that we want, it can make important steps towards that so we can stay on track. In terms of climate finance, I'd say two things. First of all, we will stick to what was set out previously about having a limit in the aid budget about money used for climate change purposes, although there are very real connections between climate change and, and poverty. The second point is that there is a commitment which we will keep to of uh, 2.9 billion on the climate change finance. I think Britain is a leader on this, but as she says, we've got to look at innovative ways of leveraging in more money from other parts of the world, frankly, including from some of the fast-growing parts of the world that when Kyoto was first thought of were very much uh, un underdeveloped countries and now are fast-developing countries, and we need to help them, but the finance shouldn't only flow from us. Daniel Kaczynski. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Will the Prime Minister have urgent talks with the Leader of the House and the Business Secretary to bring forward legislation for a national regulator ombudsman for supermarkets before more suppliers are decimated by their conduct? Well, we, we do have new arrangements in terms of uh, supermarkets. Uh, and making sure that they are doing, they are treating farmers fairly. All of us as constituency MPs have heard stories about supermarkets behaving in a very aggressive way to farmers, and I think it's right there's a proper way of trying to police this independently so that our farmers get a fair deal for the food they produce. Order. 